Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, we continue our drumbeat reporting on the brutal and sometimes deadly racist treatment of black and brown people applying for asylum at the U.S.-Mexico border and fighting back against the book censors and wannabe book burners in Texas with Tony Diaz, founder of Libros Traficante. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. We broadcast every weekday from 5 to 6 from the San Francisco Bay Area over the Pacifica Radio Network. And we are happy to be with you today. We're going to begin in Tucson with an old friend of this show, Isabel Garcia. She's an attorney, an activist, more than 40 years experience in the borderline uh, borderland she's currently a member of the and really i think she's a co-founder of the coalition day rechos humanos uh, she has been fighting for the rights as f- first as a public defender and every other way for most of her life uh, isabel garcia welcome back to flashpoints Hi, Dennis. Thank you very much. And I'm a proud member of the National Network for Immigrant and Refugee Rights that's right there in the Bay Area. So I'm really proud of that. Terrific. Uh, Well, let's start sort of where we left off because it makes sense. Last we spoke, we were concerned about one Chris Magnus, who at the time was the police chief uh, in Tucson, and apparently it appeared, and we wrote about this, uh, he covered up what looked like a, uh, a an in-custody sort of police uh, killing, murder, you might uh, call it. Some people did call it that. He actually ended up in Tucson after losing, leaving here in the East Bay when others accused him of covering up still another police murder and i guess for both of these cover-ups he has the opportunity now to be the director of the border patrol your thoughts isn't that incredible well i have to tell you that uh the cover-up uh for almost two months of the death of carlos ingram lopez was really an outrage you know it was like george floyd kind of situation where he's He's calling out for his nana, and his grandma comes out to give him water, and and they're on top of him, and they kill him. And if that's not bad enough, it was hidden from us, from the mayor and council, and from the public for almost two months. And to me, that's in, it's really not acceptable um, at all that a police department can have that kind of power. To me, that is power to be able to hide uh, this killing. And then, of course, the subsequent treatment of the family and, and all of it. And then he goes and joins an agency that doesn't even want him. They see him as too liberal, yet he, you know, he's adopting the critical incident teams that those shadowy groups that they have that come in and investigate, take over investigations when they're not supposed to. You know, investigations are supposed to be conducted by the local and state authorities where they were committed. Yet they come in and they push everybody aside and they all step aside for the feds. 
uh, and they say we'll take over. And what they do is wind up, you know, uh, at uh, minimal, minimally uh, messing up evidence and the evidence seen. Uh, and in some cases, we believe trying to to make sure that the evidence um, uh, suits them. They want to avoid liability. It's part of what they've written there that they want to minimize uh, the impact to the Border Patrol. And so then we have uh, Magnus saying that, uh, yes, he agrees with them. Um, and, uh, of course, he's in charge of the most brutal law enforcement agency uh, in the country, one that has been given license to kill. Uh, we don't see high-speed chases that wind up in people being killed by the you know numbers three eight people die uh and that's a common occurrence along the border because they chase you and then of course not to mention the killings we just have uh last uh, less than two months ago carmelo cruz was murdered by a border patrol they took two weeks to uh say anything to the public and then they said oh he was about to throw a rock isn't that incredible i saw his mother uh I mean, crying, the guy came to support his three children, and the brutality is unbelievable. And the Supreme Court two years ago gave them uh, complete uh, immunity from any civil liability if the person happens to die in Mexico. Remember Jose Antonio Elena and Sergio Hernandez, the kid in in El Paso, they both were killed by agents in the United States with weapons in the United States, and the kids died on the other side. In other words, we killed them. We killed them on their, in their land, and the Supreme Court, in a really disingenuous, dishonest opinion, in my view, uh, said that um, because they died in Mexico, there is no extension of that uh, liability. And so... You know, you also wonder, well, are they trying to protect uh, without saying uh, drones that kill people in other countries that we've done, right? Are they afraid those individuals will come in and say, look, it, they died in, in, in you know, uh, elsewhere, but those uh, buttons were pressed in the United States. Those orders were, you know, so I don't know. The bottom line is that uh, even without speculating as to that, uh, the bottom line is that Mexicanos continue to be treated the way they are. And, of course, all Latin Central Americans and all, but the hatred here toward Mexicanos is it's palpable. I mean, we still have killings. Marisol Garcia is a miracle woman, as, in, as is Angel Dominguez. Those two people uh, were shot by the Border Patrol in the head, and they survived. We just happened to see Marisol this past weekend at a conference we had in Nogales, Sonora, but she spoke about, you know, what they did to her after uh, surgery to remove part of the bullet. They transferred her to the detention center and immediately deported her without any full and fair investigation, any concern for her well-being in Mexico. Uh, you know, it's it's really um it's pretty shocking. All right. Well, let, let, let's talk. Let's talk more. Let's really get into that. We're speaking with Isabel Garcia. Um, she is a longtime civil rights lady, uh, attorney, activist. She's talking to us from Tucson. We've had a multi-year dialogue with her about human rights, civil rights at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, we're we're getting many reports, and we have documented this uh, that. 
the racism now is becoming very clear at the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm wondering if you are tracking this. We're, we've heard many stories now. If you're black, if you're brown, don't even bother trying. Article 42, you're not coming in. Uh, you might uh, have the, uh, the virus, so get out of here. But if you're white, and even if you're carrying a pet from Ukraine, come on in. We welcome you. Is, is uh, this becoming a problem that you're hearing about? Of course it is. Uh, we hear about it all across the border. In particular, our Haitian brothers and sisters are are treated uh, miserably, you know, and after our history with Haiti and our responsibility. But uh, in addition, uh, all our Central American brothers and sisters are treated poorly at the border. Not only are we violating our own national law, but, you know, the Refugee Act of 1981, but we're violating international law uh, to agreements of which we were the proponents to not refoul or, or deport anybody who's facing political persecution in their country, and we have absolutely violated that, and of course, with the complicity of the Mexican government, who should never have accepted um not even the, the remain in Mexico protocols that have really caused massive refugee camps, um, moving refugee camps all along our border. We've created a human rights, um, you know, crisis along this border, and the hypocrisy cannot be bigger. I mean, I, my heart, my heart and my tears go out for you know what I see uh, with the Ukrainian people. Uh, Fleeing, and I ask myself, why are we so hypocritical that we're not seeing people in the very same way that are fleeing horrific situations? And many times, you know, people don't understand those are horrific situations that we have helped cause, that we have helped create in these Latin American countries, which is why people don't even understand. And then look at what we're doing. We, we support Israel and what they're doing with the Palestinian people. Just like here, they're killing young people at that wall, just like they're killing them here. And so we've got hypocrisy on top of hypocrisy. Um, you know, and at this border, we, we've got people that have been here waiting two years. I mean, they've organized. I mean, that's what's so incredible. Uh, I was a participant in their protest, what, two Mondays ago? It will be on this Monday, uh, where they protested two years of Title 42 application, and and they recounted what their families have had to, to deal with and, um, and live through. Uh, because of these uh, horrific conditions that we have created with not only applications of the Remain in Mexico, not only the Title 42, but the brutal militarization of our border, the brutal destruction. <clears throat> Arizona saw more <clears throat> physical destruction of our beautiful environment than any other state under Trump. And it's still going on, of course, because... Uh, there's contracts to be filled and uh, walls to be finished and, and what have you. And people continue to die. People continue to die here along our desert. We're supposed to, uh, you know, we're going to start getting some pretty hot weather. And again, we've militarized uh, any possibility of crossing 
and criminalized it. So we push people into the most desolate of areas. And, of course, they they meet uh, deaths. We have thousands and thousands that are unaccounted for, uh, thousands that uh, whose remains exist, but they're unidentified. I mean, this is criminal. And this only began, you know, with uh, our militarization of the border, you know, implemented right when uh, when NAFTA and those things were hitting, displacing many Mexican workers. And that's exactly what we've done here. We've created a situation. People did not die in this phenomenon that we have created since the early 1900s, in particular with Mexico, urging all the Mexicans to come and, and build the United States to, you know, the streets are paved with gold kind of mentality that people came. I mean, it, for generations, people would say, vamos para el norte, you know, we're going to the north. This was generational, something the United States has created. They even codified it through the Bracero Agreement, right, in the last World War, that eventually had to be terminated by Mexico itself because of the massive violations of the rights and, and the guaranteed uh, under that agreement. And so here we are, um, uh, lands that were taken by conquest, lands that uh, we've been dispossessed of, where, you know, again, we're made to feel like we're the foreigners uh at all times, the indigenous people here, I mean, uh, face that, that the Hana Atom, just this past year, a few months ago, uh, a young woman, Amber Ortega, fought the federal government because she and Nellie Joe, David, they uh, blocked the huge uh, bulldozers that were blasting their land, tearing down Sawados in the autumn have a relationship it's their religion and yet they arrested them treated them terribly and they were about to deny uh them the use of the religious freedom restoration act of which many people in the right wing have utilized to justify their actions and which some of the no more deaths volunteers here had used successfully and when it was about to she was about to be denied that it just hit us in the face like how can that be the people who hold their religion in a very deep way protecting mother earth and that's what they were doing and they weren't not going to be allowed the good thing is a good lawyer it's it's very let let me let me let me just take a moment isabel garcia first of all to let people know that it is you speaking attorney long time uh incredibly important border work the rights of people at the border now when you talk about the Totona Onum you're talking uh, about a tribe that's part of a group of tribes who live on both sides of the border in fact last time you we saw you is when the UN was investigating the violence uh, coming from the United States government in the militarization of the border and the destroying of a way of life. Like you're saying, you could go out of your house uh, to, to, to get something at a local store and you'll end up in an ice prison and you'll never get home again uh, because all of a sudden your land is occupied. And people in where I am don't understand the level of intensity of the militarization and the destruction of the people and the animals that live there. 
Yes, it's unbelievable what we have done to their habitat, their inability to migrate. It's it's really brutal on everybody. I mean, really, if you want one word that describes our border policy, it's death. Death. Death of Mother Earth. It's a very purposeful policy for you to die, even deportation, which uh, our friend calls uh, social death, uh, where you're deported and separated from your family. Imagine somebody be the family being in Chicago and you're in Mexico as a parent and, you know, they're doing homework and you can't be with them. I mean, people don't think about that. And then we have this incredible physical, biological death that began, uh, you know, starting in 2000, uh, late 90s with the implementation of these uh, operations, uh, militaristic operations, gatekeeper, hold the line, and here, uh, safeguard, imagine that. All of these border security measures that have brought nothing but destruction, death, suffering, and just a continued uh, genocide of indigenous people. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. Here's what we're going to do. Mike, let's cue up some music, take a musical break. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue with Isabel, and also we're going to invite into the conversation our good brother, our friend, senior producer here at Flashpoints, Miguel Gavila Molina, who knows something about... Uh, the implications and the impact and the violence of the Bracero program. So let's take a short musical break and we will be back with Isabel Garcia and with Miguel Molina. Listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. This is your daily investigative news magazine. Joining us uh, is, and we're happy to have her, is Isabel Garcia. She's a longtime attorney, civil rights activist, working with many movements and many people for justice, particularly Tucson and south to the border. And it has not been a happy time for brown people. Uh, joining us as well is our own Miguel Gavila Molina. Miguel, welcome. Uh, I know you wanted to jump in here and uh, uh, talk a little bit with Isabel. Absolutely, Dennis, and thank you, Isabel, for joining us in this conversation. We talked earlier, and one of the things that you really 
you know, really brought to light is the the issue happening at the U.S.-Mexican border, and that is the militarization of it. And I think the people listening today need to really understand that the militarization started happening under a Democratic administration. That was Bill Clinton. And uh, when when his term was over, he that, that action forced the movement of people away from California into Arizona and uh, a place called El Pasaje del Diablo, the, the Diablo, that is the passage of the devil, which is one of the most remote, desolate, and hot areas on earth. And a lot of people have perished in those zones, those areas. Well, that was something that the gatekeeper militarization of the Clinton administration did. And then we had, of course, uh, George W. come in and, uh, you know, the preemptive wars and those conflicts in the Middle East and the destruction of the Middle East and its governance and peoples. And then we have the Obama administration come in, another Democrat. And under the Obama administration, that Border Patrol population, the workers, the, the workforce for the Border Patrol went into the thousands, if not close to 200,000 personnel, something from as low, I think, of 40,000 to begin with. By the time his eight years were complete, they brought in just tripled the, the the workforce of the Border Patrol and turned it into ICE. And under this Democratic administration of Obama, you know, he built the concentration camps, or excuse me, detention centers. Uh, and and uh, that policy, you know, as we saw under his administration, Democratic, got the highest, broke every record all the way to the 50s, you know, of deportations of any prior administration. So here we are, you know, Isabel, you know, we've seen this mass uh, hypocrisy happen in Tijuana. You know, where we see, you know, thousands of people have been waiting for, you know, two, three, and sometimes even longer years. We've mm-hmm. seen the violence against, you know, by the Border Patrol on both sides against, you know, black immigrants coming in from Haiti, North Africa, and in other places. Mm-hmm. But, but, but with that happening, you know, we're in an election year, midterm election. The Biden administration made certain promises, you know, less than two years ago and, and, and about, you know, immigration reform. That was one of the top items on his agenda. Well, what happened? We've seen what happened. He sends the vice president, uh, Kamala Harris, to, to go down there and say, don't come. I wonder if he's going to send her to Tijuana to say the same thing to the immigrants that are coming in from the situation that's happening between Ukraine and Russia. It's just so much hypocrisy. And, and, you know, I saw just a few years ago, Isabel Dennis, we saw under the Trump administration, you know, people being tear gassed, women being just bomb blasted with gas and children. I mean, why? It's unbelievable how, you know, these administrations are treating black and brown, you know, refugees, immigrants. And, and it's again, we're looking at election year and the Democrats are going to be clamoring for the Latino vote because they don't want to lose the House. They don't want to lose any members in the Senate. You know, and it's and it's like that's the only time we as a population, as a brown population in this country, have any meaning or purpose with these administrations of our vote and our sweat and labor. What do you think, Isabel? Is that going to change in the future? Well, I think it is going to change when people start taking charge. You're right. I mean, our Congress and Senate is just not reflective at all, really, of of the population and what people think. And, and we've got to remember, it wasn't just Bill Clinton, you know. It was even before Bill Clinton. I mean, we have been... Um, 
the economic restructuring has been going on, you know. Um, what they call globalization has been going on, neoliberal policies that are being imposed all over. All of these things have been changing, and Democrats and Republicans alike, alike, have really, really um, treated us really terribly, especially on this militarization. Uh, they all go for, we've got to have border security, border security, without addressing the the human rights impacts and the lack of any security with the enormous, unprecedented expenditure for the armament that they have down there. So, you know, they I, I keep telling people, would ask me, oh, did Obama hate us more than anybody because he deported over 2 million? I said, no, he was simply the latest occupant uh, and con- and person who continues to resource um, these flawed policies. And they're flawed policies. Prevention through deterrence is a fa- flawed policy, as is the consequence delivery system. That, that means punish. Imagine prevention through deterrence and consequences what? That's why we have a human rights crisis here. It's by design. Definitely by design. Um, uh, and Isabel, uh, they're really, uh, again, as Miguel was saying, uh, elections are coming up, so you probably see the the politicians out. Uh, it is uh, the Latino vote, the brown vote, uh, the non-white vote. Uh, that's going to determine uh, who runs this country. Um, Is there a strategy uh, within the community uh, to hold these folks accountable? Because seriously, and we've talked a a lot about it, but I don't think, Isabella and Miguel, we could talk about it too much. The treatment that we've seen, for instance, the treatment of the Haitians, these mass deportations, these roundups on horses, uh, whipping uh, the folks, uh, the being locked down on planes by the hundreds being deported to Haiti, which is perhaps the most dangerous, Port-au-Prince is probably the most dangerous capital in the world. People don't know what to do. You can see them trying to stay on the plane. They're refusing to leave the planes once they land in Haiti. It is brutal beyond belief. And there really doesn't seem to be an understanding about the depth of brutality that the United States is participating with these flights. No, and people don't want us to teach what's going on. Look at the uproar over what they call... CRT when in fact it's that they don't want them they don't want us to learn real histories the you know the foundations of racism that we don't learn about slavery we don't know learn about the period of reparations and the betrayals and Jim Crow and we don't learn about the you know land theft and and genocide of indigenous peoples and land we don't learn about the history of labor I mean, imagine the most transformational um, thing that happened is organizing, people organizing for themselves. That transformed many lives. Do we learn anything about it? Nothing. We don't know anything about immigration. We tout ourselves as a nation of immigrants. We know nothing. And, of course, we know nothing of how this particular area was founded. The border was imposed. 
uh, and continues to to be, you know, uh, executed on us. Really, this border is, uh, we live in, in this architecture for this uh, massive militarization that we're seeing. Amazing. And ju- just in terms of the internal politics, how is this playing out in Tucson? Uh, how is it, uh, how are people feeling in your community about what's going on? Are, are they going to go out and vote for the Democrats despite uh, being abandoned? Or, or is it like we don't have a choice? It's either the Democrats or uh, the hella Republicans. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to say. I, I can't talk for the community, but I think there's an awful lot of, uh, we could go back to Trump and what the heck do you think about that, right? So it, it's a matter of, um, in a lot of ways, of just uh, pushing forward and the person who's going to push us backwards less. Which one, you know, they call it the lesser of two evils. Which is the one where we can exert pressure and have any any kind of chance of having an impact, right? I mean, we can't, in my opinion, just um, abandon it all, you know. Um, I do believe, though, that, you know, people organize in different ways. And it's, um, uh, it, it's you know, anyway, I can't speak for the, the whole community, but I do okay. think that... We are facing those very issues that you're talking about, that the Democrats have not come through. Uh, Biden said he was going to, I mean, when I was very sorry to hear uh, Vice President Harris say what she said. I just thought that there would be much more depth of understanding of Latin America and, and what, you know, I just was very surprised and shocked. And so I think we have to, uh, continue to push these Democrats, and the, what it, re- it really is. It really is quite troubling. It, it yeah. is quite troubling the the lack of history that she brought uh, to that first trip to Central America. Where there she's in Death Squad Guatemala, uh, okay. uh, and she's talking in a country that suffered a uh, a, a literal attempted genocide. Um, they actually, the United States, I think it was Clinton who actually had to uh, apologize for the U.S.'s part in genocide in Guatemala. Uh, and oh, yeah. everything about that uh, yes, history between the United States hours. and Guatemala. Yeah. Yes. Each one of these countries, Honduras, El Salvador, each one of these countries, Mexico, and people have no idea. You know, they have no so idea. The ignorance All right. is really well, listen. Thank you. Well, we're we're going to have to leave it there for now, Isabel Garcia. But it's always incredible to speak with you and to uh, share your experiences and uh, to give us a sense of what's happening in the Southwest, uh, in the borderlands, because um, we here in the Bay Area and in many parts of the country don't have this a clue about uh, what happens down there uh, and what the multiple dangers are and the nature of racism as it unfolds. But more to come. Please stay Thank safe. Uh, we hope that you will come back. Uh, and be with us again. I definitely will. My saludos to Berkeley and Oakland and the Bay Area in general. Thank you.
Thank you. And we're going to take a short break. We're going to ask Miguel to stay with me. I'm going to ask him to preview uh, his special that's coming up on Monday. Uh, and uh, we want to hear about that. But we're going to take a break. We'll be back. on Pacifica Radio. Joining us, staying with us, is our own Miguel Gabriel Molina. Uh, Miguel has done a very special interview with uh, a close old friend of his, uh, Richard Montoya. Miguel, you want to give us a little preview of uh, the interview, which celebrates also uh, um, the great, late and great Cesar Chavez, whose birthday was yesterday. I think he was... How old would he be? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think... I I think uh, yeah. I'm not sure. I think he'd be in his early 90s. I think 93 or Tell so. Tell us about but, the but, interview, know, Miguel. Yeah, it's, uh, it was an opportunity, Dennis, uh, uh, during the uh, uh, Cole Marathon, both at KPFA and KPFK in Los Angeles, and I was down there with uh, Don Pedro Reyes, uh, and I got an opportunity to sit with uh, uh, Richard Montoya, uh, uh, whose uh, fame and, of course, uh, one of the founding members of Culture Clash, the uh, Chicano-Latino uh, comedy troupe, and, uh, of course, Ambassadors of Culture, and uh, it was an opportunity to sit down with him and talk uh uh, with him in length, uh, I, I had the privilege and honor this uh, past summer to have uh, uh, baptized uh, water ceremony uh, his uh, young daughter, Luna, Luna Montoya, and uh, uh, we talked about doing this. So I, uh, while I was down in Los Angeles, we sat uh, one evening and, and we talked about uh, his life uh, growing up with his father, the uh, acclaimed... Uh, literary giant Jose Montoya that came out of that beat and uh, out of San Fran into the East Bay and of course one of the founding members of the uh, Royal uh, Chicano Air Force uh, which was a group of uh, veterans and other radical artists uh, who uh, came together and basically resurrected the the Mexican mural uh, movement that happened in Mexico during the Golden Age, uh, uh, during Diego Rivera, Frida Carlo, uh, Cisqueros, and other incredible uh, artists who came uh, out of that, that epoch of the 30s and, and, and 40s. Uh, and uh, they, uh, the Royal uh, Chicano Air Force, under the direction of uh, Jose Montoya, brought that 
uh, art and and uh, used art as a means to educate, empower, and of course elevate people's consciousness. And uh, through that, it was at the same period, uh, according to my compadre Richard, that uh, he was there. They were growing up with his father and traveling with him. Then the farm workers movement came into being uh, early uh, in the middle 60s, and uh, he met up with Cesar Chavez, who was also a veteran uh, that had come back from doing service in the Army. And uh, he met uh, Dolores Huerta when the wildcat strike happened in Fresno. Uh, when the uh, Filipino workers decided they couldn't take the conditions anymore and went on a wild tomato strike. That opened it up. Uh, Richard, along with some of his brothers, and of course his father, got very involved traveling down there. And in that relationship between uh, uh, Richard's father, Jose Montoya, and uh, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, uh, the art came into play. What we see now is... Uh, farm worker art, Chicano art of the 60s and 70s and 80s, all that was inspired by the group of these artists, you know, uh, of the Royal Chicano Beautiful. Air Force. They created uh, a lot of the images of the Union strike, the the uh, the walkouts, the picket lines, all of that art came out of this group. So it was just incredible, Dennis. I could keep talking about well, it. I, you know, it uh, I'm so glad. I am so glad that you had a chance to go down there and sit with Richard. We we love the the work of Culture Clash, and obviously it means a lot to our show, Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. So I just want to alert people that that's going to be the entire show on Monday. Your uh, wonderful dialogue on this amazing history, and uh, we would not have this access if you were not uh, friends from deep in childhood. So that also comes through on the interview. That's going to be Monday. Uh, do not miss it. My name is Dennis Bernstein. That is Miguel Gavidon Molina. We're going to now uh, play for you a very powerful interview we did with Tony Diaz of Libros Traficante uh, in Texas fighting against the censors, the book censors, and those who would like to be book burners. Short break. Be back with Tony Diaz. segment with uh, the possible book banning and the book burners. There's more and more people who think uh, some books are dangerous and they need to be banned, perhaps even burned. Uh, and the battle has been going on for some time. And somebody who's been at the forefront of this battle is our good friend, Tony Diaz. He's the founder of El Libros Traficante. He, I believe, if I've got this right, was the first Chicano to earn a Master's of Fine Arts degree from the University of Houston in creative writing. Tony Diaz, it is great to have you back. 
Dennis, it's, well, it's great to say hi. It's terrible that these book banners are at again. <laughs> it's great to, to well, that is terrible. And it's also terrible that the governor of California uh, has decided uh, that ethnic studies is too dangerous and vetoed and banned it, essentially. Your thoughts on that? It, it really one big piece of evidence that, that I think that kind of fills in the puzzles. So a couple things, Dennis. One, I honestly thought we would be having just birthday party observation for the Libre Traficante Caravan, which we got to remind people, 10 years ago, right-wing Republicans in Arizona banned Mexican-American studies. We have to remind people about that. That means the erasure she's been erased, right? So I, I thought we would simply mark it observe it and continue with our work turns out we got to fire up the machine again and i think here's what happened dennis i haven't had a chance to talk about this too much because you know not everybody's smart as you dennis <laughs> but i like the way you're putting this Please. all together because here, here in texas they're not connecting the dots here's some dots to connect the people who want to end freedom of speech they don't plan one or two years ahead or like some of our community does, you know, they have to do things on the rush or on the fly. They obviously are planning in 10-year cycles because here we are 10 years later. The specifics have changed. The tactics are the same. Here's the other thing that we have to open our eyes to. Um, there was also a bill here in Texas that would have, uh, House Bill 1504 by State Rep. Christina Morales, that would have made... Uh, ethnic studies a requirement for high schools. They've passed the courses here in Texas. It's not a requirement at every uh, district. That would have changed it. I think a lot of us as activists, we believed in pushing political capital. Um, some of us were close to it. You, you're mentioning California. In, in Texas, we're not shocked that the right-wingers here are opposing it. It was shocking to see the governor of a lib supposedly liberal state you know, not champion ethnic studies from day one. The fact that the community had a fight so hard over several years, that is mind-blowing. But the lesson's simple. At the end of the day, it's about community. It's about community. So we haven't abandoned our community in the process. We've been working on it. One of the other co-founders, the Libre Traficante, Lupe Mendez, he's Texas Poet Laureate now. Um, I'll come back again if you invite me. My book is coming out in August as well. So you know what? We, we learned our lesson, but we've always been true to the community. So we're going to fire up the community again. We'll start some new marches. It, it, it's on. We're going to answer these well, book banners with a movement. And that's, uh, le let me hearken back. Uh, we met you in Tucson amidst a group of uh, crying kids who were desperate, who could not believe that the the powers that be uh, in Tucson had decided to literally rip the ethnic studies program out from under the kids in the middle of a semester. So we uh, learned a great deal broadcasting from Tucson and covering that story, how deep the program meant uh, went, how important what it meant to these kids. Can you talk a little bit more about why it's crucial and it could be, you know, some kids talked about being suicidal until they got into this program and began to feel good about themselves and their culture. And I'm glad you, you brought up the heroes 
it, the heroes of this movement are the students because back when that is psychological the right wingers in charge in Arizona not just that ban of ethnic studies but they enforced it by walking into classrooms and in front of our young boxing up books by our most beloved authors that's straight up psychological warfare but these youth they told there's community they protested at the tucson unified school district board they were fighting day in day out they were telling the world i mean everyone now takes for granted social media it was at the you know early phases of that they were telling people through blogs and videos and one of our own crew uh brian parra she's the one that heard some of these messages from the students so it was those students that taught us as tejanos they, they taught us that if they're in the belly of the beast, standing up to these oppressors, we have to not just stand with them, not just get them their books, but we got to sit and school all these people that want to ban the book. So it was heartbreaking to see that trauma. It was powerful to see all the professors that created that award-winning curriculum. I want to give a shout out to all the early plaintiffs that were educators that were sued, maligned, or fired, and had the, the to sue the state of Arizona. Um, they were the first on the, uh, the as plaintiffs. The students to sue Arizona, you had to be a current student. So you had some early students that started those lawsuits, including my Arce, uh, Cristina Lopez, uh, Nicholas Dominguez, and they pushed it at the at that level of of legal uh legal enterprise we then said we have to unite with our brothers and sisters in tucson we were you know in houston but you know i i don't care how far you are you ban us we're going to be there and we showed up we united with them but we learned from them how to fight these forces and i, I want to remind people yeah we, we got banned our community came together and we schooled them and i'll tell you what i will i will make this bold proclamation these right-wingers, they're not going to ban Mexican American studies again because we schooled them, but they're using other tricks and tactics. And now they're going after all the BIPOC brothers and sisters. So that's what we're seeing here in Texas. But we've seen this before. We just got to unite with new tactics. And what I learned also, Tony Diaz, when we did that story and continuing on through, is this kind of thorough and well-crafted program which it was and it got accolades because of it and it was effective and successful what i learned is that this kind of effective program is education for the entire family it -hmm. begins uh, the the discussion starts in school but the books and the kids come home and the dialogue uh continues over the dinner table uh and that's what we call empowerment wouldn't you say no, no, w- without a doubt. And I think at that moment, we didn't really get a chance to break that down. This book, it's called The Tip of the Pyramid, Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. It's out in August, but I try and chronicle not just what's already been reported, but about community cultural capital, what they went after, Dennis. I think you hit the nail right on the head there. The The forces that be... They wanted to discourage community from coming together. They don't want, they, they're not just scared of the Chicanas and Chicanos 
reading books about the history and culture. They don't want that family engaged. They don't want those family libraries. They really do want to silence the voices across the board. But and let me give, let me remind folks of some facts as well. Dr. Nolan sure. Cabrera, he, him and his team, um, they actually quantified specifically using the most detailed analysis and evaluations. They quantified how that program, the six years it was in place, thoroughly transformed the dropout rate. There was a double digit dropout rate, which is what the, these people that want to quiet. The, the, that we're losing you. Uh, that, maybe that you could turn there. your head a little bit, Tony. We're, lo- oh, we're sure. losing you a bit. Sure. I, I'm jumping around too much. I'm getting, I'm getting too excited here. <laughs> Is that better? It's good. Thank okay. you. Yes. Okay. But the, the book uh, specifically and technically quantifies what we already know, that when people are exposed, when students are exposed to culturally relevant material, they not just in that particular area, across the board, science, math, and the graduation rate shot up to 98%. The, the, la- the last thing I'll say, if you, unless you want to hear more, I'm happy to talk about it, but th- that evidence that was submitted at the Texas State, uh, at the Arizona Supreme Court to help overturn that racist law. So this is not speculation. That is coded in the law in the law annals, but we, we already knew that. that. That's why we're inspired by the house on Mango Street, Ana Castillo, Dagoberto Guild. In the past, we had to tell people one by one that that's what's happening. I guess we had to go to court to prove it. Indeed. We are really delighted to be speaking with our friend Tony Diaz. He's the founder of El Libros Traficantes. Uh, and they have been fighting to keep the books in the library to stand against ethnic studies. Let's zero in now. You're talking to us from Tejas, uh, the heart of the matter. That's where they, they create all those racist <laughs> textbooks. Most people don't understand that most of the textbooks uh, in America are made in Texas. I remember when I was a, a grade school teacher uh, and I was teaching a bunch of kids who they called them emotionally disturbed, but they were rightfully disturbed. And part of the reason was because they were uh, not getting the kind of education and the kind of care that the, the rich, the kids get in the uh, richer neighborhoods. I know we had to make our own books uh, and those mm-hmm. textbooks were useless and racist. So tell us about Texas and what the battle looks like there. Sure. And we're, we're actually, we just had the 10 year birthday party for the Libertad Caravan from 2012 when we smuggled the books back into uh, Tucson. We're about to launch a caravan to Austin, Texas, which is the capital. And that's going to be on April 29th because here's what's going on now. I know a lot of people, I, I hesitate to call it the anti-CRT movement because we all know that there is no examples of graduate level courses like critical race theory being introduced into kindergarten to eighth grade. That's just not happening. But, you know, but there is this right-wing Republican here, uh, Dan Patrick, who's lieutenant governor. He has that he wants to go after professors who teach critical race theory. That's a different ball game because I'm looking right here at my home library because we all got to have our home libraries, Dennis. You know, with, once you read the Bam book, they can't take it away. And in my copy, full book, 
titled Critical Race. Okay, we're losing you. The, the sound is a little bit oh. bad. Try and adjust again. Oh, sorry. Let me move a little bit this way. Hopefully. Okay. It's a little bit sorry. better. Yeah. Oh, yes. no, no. I'm, I'm sorry about that. But there's an actual book called Critical Race Theory that is taught at the graduate level and college level. So, and this guy is talking about going after the professors who teach CRT. To me, uh, black and Chicano professors and Chicano professors who teach African-American history and Mexican-American history. So we're leading a caravan from here on the east end of Houston, Segundo Barrio, where there's a wall called Latina Because our Latina icons demand to know if this guy thinks their history is critical race theory and if he's going to ban it. We're getting on buses April 29th. Buses are coming from San Antonio also. We're going to start an underground library in Austin. You believe that, Dennis? You believe we're going to start underground libraries again? That's what it's like here in Texas. Okay. Underground uh, libraries, huh? You got to sneak that, the books in. You know, it's like, oh, my goodness. But we're experts, so we're going to be launching the Austin Underground Library. Folks can donate books. Um, and we're also going to lead a procession of lowriders and bookmobiles from Mexico Arte Museum all the way to the front door of Dan Patrick to demand that he say whether or not Mexican American studies is critical race theory, which is not. But we're also going to launch and recognize the Latina icons from Austin and demand that their history be extolled. We want murals for them in Austin. Um, you know, the COVID, the COVID shutdown's over, so they had the upper hand because our community... As we all know, our community had trouble getting access to to schools. Um, there was that big digital divide. They had this advantage to really push their anti-freedom of speech campaigns. But now we're organizing again. We can convene again. We're all triple vaxxed again on our movement. So we're waking up. We're pushing it. If anybody wants to join us, if they want to jump on a caravan this time around, we're happy to help them out. But we're, we're also coming to state, too, um, Dennis. So we'll be coming to California again at some point. Of course, going back to, to Arizona as well. And we're going back to all the underground libraries that we started before. Um, and let, let, me, let me say this, too. We're not repeating what we did before because last time we stopped them in one state. We contained their racist law to Arizona, and our community was able to focus on that and overturn their racist law. This time, those racist laws are spread. So we're going to answer their decade-long movement with a decades-long movement. So we, no one needs to mistake this for a rerun, and no one needs to mistake this for patchwork. This is decades-long movement that we're planning in place, and we're activating every Texas city, and we're going to be reaching out to our friends in other states as well. That's what's up. I noticed, I'm sure you uh, took note of the fact that our good friend and brother, a contributor to the show, Martina Spada, won the National Book Award this 
week. And uh, Martina Spada has been recognized also by the censors because they, I think they yanked uh, uh, Zapata's disciples, his essays, uh, from the libraries as well. And I will point out that National Public Radio censored, they first they commissioned him to do a poem on sort of freedom and freedom of, ex- of expression uh, in the United States. And then NPR censored him because he wrote the poem about Mumia Abu-Jamal. So censorship is alive and well, even if you win, I guess, the National Book Award. Um, but let's but the, the let's battle continues. Martin. Yeah. Well, you're right. Uh, Brother Martin was being taught in Tucson Independent School District. That was one of the, that was one of the dangerous books. So before yeah. he got this national recognition. So those students were ahead of the time. They were ahead of their time. And, enough. of course, Martina Spada was ahead of their time. But National Public Radio, remember, you did it. We proved it. <laughs> Don't do it again. <laughs> Final right. words. You want to you wanna have a sign-off uh, for the governor of California just because... That's where we're broadcasting from. Well, what's your word if you could eye to eye them? Uh, uh, oh, I tell you what. Here's what I would say to to both governors, because I guess it doesn't matter if you're talking to a right leaning governor or left leaning governor. Right now, we're we're going to school the Texas right wingers and make sure that our history and culture is protected. But we got gas in these buses, and we're happy to go to California to make to join our brothers and sisters that have been doing the work for decades and. This is the turnaround time. So, you know, this vato needs to get on the right side of history, and we're happy to correct him as well. But right now we got our hands full in Texas, but we're taking care of business here. If people want to know more, they can go to librotraficante.com. And if you're within the sound of my voice, we're deputizing you into Libro Traficantes. All right. Well, me and Miguel Gabriel Molina, the senior producer for this show, are going to be at the border to welcome you in. Uh, Tony Diaz, uh, we thank you for taking the time out to be with us on Flashpoints. Please don't be a stranger. We always love to have you. Likewise. Gracias, hermanos. Bye. All right. Adios.